Hockey media has an important role in society. It's the link between hockey teams and their fans. Hockey journalism helps keep the public entertained and informed on the state of hockey. It's their responsibility to hold people and behaviors accountable. The media often criticizes toxic incidents in hockey, but stories about hockey's overall toxic culture have pretty much gone unreported. But due to social justice within the past year, that's all starting to change. Dan Robson is a best-selling book author and sports journalist with The Athletic. He spent multiple years playing competitive hockey in the Ontario Junior Hockey League. So Dan knows firsthand what toxic hockey culture is like. My name is Dan Robson. I'm the senior enterprise uh, writer for The Athletic. In January 2021, Dan wrote a story for The Athletic titled Hockey's Toxic Culture. After a troubling year, can the game finally change? The article goes into great detail about incidents of toxicity that have been present within the hockey culture for decades. Dan brings great insight because he played competitively with the Ontario Junior Hockey League's Brampton Capitals in the early 2000s. It was something that's been on my mind for a long time as a sports journalist. I started to reflect a lot on my own experiences and I could see a lot of parallels in the stories that I was hearing spilling out into headlines and coming out and, and not necessarily in the sort of the egregious ways that we see in these headlines, but in ways that I, in patterns that I, I found familiar. And so for me, I felt that I was in a position to be reflective in the way that I wrote about this in a way that I think the sport itself is often very resistant to. And so it was a, it was an opportunity for me to really challenge that. Some of the parallels Dan recognizes from his experiences in the OJHL is the homophobic language that's used in the community. There was just a very casual use of homophobic language within hockey locker rooms, on the bench in general. I mean, this was just something that was normal. So normal that players often don't even realize the harm in homophobic language because they're surrounded by it from every aspect of the sport, starting at a very young age. Something that you would hear a lot it was just from whether it was from coaches themselves describing plays or players just insulting each other using uh, homophobic language as insults and I, and i found that just the the normalization of that is pretty damning i mean it just really sort of is, is baked into the fabric of the way that the hierarchy of a locker room is communicated teamwork is extremely important in the sport of hockey and it's very important for hockey players to feel like they fit in this means that adopting the language and slang that hockey culture demands is necessary. This is sort of really a part of what the fabric of hockey is. There's this idea of what uh, conforming to an identity is and what we are as hockey players has to fit a certain mold. And in creating language and using language that was so casually dismissive and hurtful and, and, and insulting, I think it, it helped create a idea of like, this is what you are, and this is what you are not. And this is a negative thing. And so anybody in that locker room, I mean, I guess the implicit, there was an idea that everybody in that locker room was the same. And we had this sort of, this is what a normal, quote unquote, hockey player is. With age comes wisdom. And Dan says, as he grew up, he could better reflect on his time in competitive hockey and critically analyze how the behavior in that hockey room could influence others. 
that's when I that's when I started to feel not just sort of um, upset about it, but guilty about it too. Because then I realized I thought, you know, I I don't I don't I don't know who was hurt in that locker room because obviously it's, you know this people's lives and identities and we're young people growing up at that time, and so those ideas were just being on a daily basis. I mean, practices, games, just constantly reiterated. And so it, it was later on that I started to recognize, I think, the more implicit and what that meant. Not just that it was obviously hurtful, but that it was so deeply uh, inherent in deciding who plays this game and who doesn't. Non-heterosexual men are perceived to not belong in the sport, which is a reason why homophobic language is even used. But the reality is, non-heterosexual men often leave the sport because of the constant use of homophobic language is too much to endure. I thought about, you know, if I, if I was a homosexual person in that locker room, how, like, you, you would be told every single day that you don't belong. And you would be told every single day that you're considered less than everybody else. Hockey media has been instrumental in deciding what makes a hockey player. They have the ability to criticize hockey players for not conforming and they shape the perspective about how hockey players should act. If you were to sort of do a critical analysis of, of hockey journalism over the, you know, the decades, you would be able to see, I think, language within it. That's not necessarily overt and hateful, but is, is sort of implied and like, this is what hockey players are. Like, I think we help create that, um, that narrative for sure. A good example is Don Cherry as the host of Hockey Night in Canada's Coach's Corner. Cherry was known for his love of rough-and-tough hockey play. He would praise players who would fight and be physical, but if a player backed away from a fight or didn't show signs of hegemonic masculinity, he would describe them using terms like sissies or insinuate the players were woman or homosexual. This matters because Coach's Corner had been a staple in Canadian hockey culture for decades. It had a huge influence on how fans and hockey players understood what it meant to be a hockey player. A big reason why hockey players were portrayed from one perspective is because hockey media tended to not be very diverse. And that's a problem that still continues to this day. The reality is hockey journalists tend to be white heterosexual men uh, and it has been for a long time and that's just sort of how um, that's, that's also part of I mean that's part of the whole problem that's sort of baked into this whole culture of like this is what a hockey journalist is and so I think making sure that there's different people telling those stories um, I mean that that goes for a while like there's more diversity in general um, telling those stories then also in the stories that we're telling those people like myself who have platforms to write for major publications and to have an audience that we're being cognizant of the stories that we're telling and the stories that we're not telling and doing our best to listen and learn about how to tell stories about different experiences better. Learning to tell those stories from different experiences is important in the portrayal of LGBTQ issues in the media. However, since there are so few openly queer men in the professional hockey community, duties to provide those experiences fall on the shoulders of an elite few. The day an active NHL player comes out as queer, he will be looked at to be a spokesperson for the LGBTQ community. You know, I mean, that person in reality, 
will carry a heavy burden. They, they will be the person that we call all the time. This is the role that Brock McGillis is playing right now. And I, I've talked to him many times and I deeply respect what he is doing and what he's done. But I also wonder how tiring it is because it's just, you know, we need a, we need a comment about homophobia in sports. We, we asked Brock about it, you know, and it, he has been so brave and so strong and being able to be out there and be such a, a, a powerful voice. But we rely on him all the time. And so I, I wonder if we'll, we'll be doing the same and we'll be doing sort of this sort of like, here's the first gay NHL player. And, and we'll be so proud of ourselves for writing these stories about being inclusive and everything. But then it, I think the work comes after that. And, and, and the work actually comes before that too, because uh, creating an, a, a space where someone feels comfortable to do that has a lot to do with the environment that we're creating as a hockey community. And, and media is a big part of the hockey community. And luckily, that aspect of the hockey community is starting to change slowly but surely as Dan looks to the future. It's one of those things where you go, I think we have come a long way and then we have, I think, hockey players, media in general, where we're moving in the right direction. But hockey itself is, is slow to change. And this is just the reality of the sport that, that uh, I've helped create that culture by being part of it. And, and you know, for generations before, this is just... Hockey is, it prides itself on, on something like on, on being um, such a, you know, sort of uniform, every person's the same. And we're in this, this idea of hockey. We think that's a great thing. Um, and we punish people who sit outside of the box. And that, that framework isn't, hasn't changed yet. So as much as we're having conversations, we're, we're, you know, we're, we're, we're using hockey tape that promotes inclusivity, like all of the, all of the symbols that, that we think are great and we pat ourselves in the back for. The root of the, of the reality of it is still there. And that is why these conversations are more are important. And at a grassroots level and at every level of the game, that's why real conversations and real education is, is the only thing I think that's going to help um, make hockey the inclusive sport that it should be because it's one of the best sports in the world and we all love it. So we, we should want that. And the changes are slowly coming along. Less than two weeks after this interview with Dan, 19-year-old Nashville Predators prospect Luke Prokop came out as gay. He made history becoming the very first player under NHL contract to publicly come out as gay. His bravery and courage coming out at such a young age in a very heterosexual industry is impressive. And it may also be an indicator of more changes to come. A recent Gallup survey found that one in six US adults in Generation Z consider themselves LGBT. These adults are born between the years 1997 and 2002 the same generation as Luke Prokop. According to the same survey, these rates of LGBT adults are much higher than any other generation and could signal that Gen Z adults are more willing to identify themselves as LGBT. This could be a positive indicator that the next generation of professional hockey players will be more comfortable being open about their sexuality. However, until then, there are still issues LGBTQ2S plus people face in hockey and in the sport media industry. 
Devon Haru is an experienced sports journalist based out of Toronto. He's worked for the CBC in Saskatoon and Calgary, reporting news and sports. He also hosts The Curling Show for CBC Sports. Devon has covered everything from the Great Cup Championships to NBA Finals to US Open Tennis, with countless NHL games in between. Just this past summer, he covered the 2020 Tokyo Olympic and Paralympic Games as an openly gay journalist. Devon grew up in a hockey family in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, where he, his father, and brother played hockey, and his sister and mother played ringette, so they pretty much lived at the rink. But from an early age, Devon felt the influence of hypermasculinity in hockey, which included a lot of anxiety about socializing in the change room. It was a scary, turbulent time in my life. But Devon was also very active in other sports like swimming, soccer, and badminton. I loved badminton. It was an individual sport. I didn't have to worry about who was in the locker room or who was going to be showering. And so there was a real draw to that for me. But you can imagine in a hyper-masculine household how badminton would have been viewed and how the hard hit em, rock em, sock em, Don Cherry sport would have been viewed. And so I had this huge internal struggle about whether I continue with hockey. The decision to stop hockey materialized when Devin was called up to play peewee and was confronted with the concept of a men's hockey change room. And I knew that at that point in my life that I was, a, I was starting to be attracted to guys. And I didn't know if they were having the same experiences as me. I didn't know if they thought it was normal for us to be walking around and showering together and there was affection shown towards one another. And it was such a confusing thing because it's like, do you like me or are you experimenting? Are you trying to figure out your sexuality like me? Like, what did that all mean? And you can't talk about it. But there's a lot of homoerotic energy that happens in a locker room. And for somebody that young confronting all of that, it was crushing. And I remember telling my mom that I didn't want to play hockey because I didn't want to go to my dad first because I knew he would have been disappointed. But there was one time that I actually locked myself in the bathroom of our house. I was so anxiety filled because I did not want to go to hockey practice. And that was the end for me. Language is a huge way perceptions of LGBTQ people are formed. And as we've heard over and over, common language in hockey is homophobic and harmful to LGBTQ players. But of course, as, as you're going through high school in a conservative city, in a family that didn't have a lot of education about what it meant to be LGBTQ+, there was no space for that conversation in our household. And this is not, to this day, this is not to um, talk poorly upon my family or down at my family, but, you know, my dad used homophobic terms in a derogatory way to express poor performance on the hockey ice during the game. So when you hear those things, you immediately understand that that's a derogatory less than thing and you can't be that. 
And I, and I remember these moments, they burn into your brain and into your being and you go, I can't be that. And if I am that, they're never going to know and I'm going to run away to Toronto and they're never going to know my secret. Unlike members of racial or ethnic minority communities who typically have family to help children navigate the world and communities that they live in, LGBTQ plus youth more often than not feel isolated in the world they live in. An LGBTQ plus child could grow up without knowing anyone else who is LGBTQ plus, who could help them understand their feelings or feel accepted in the community. They fight an internal battle that can often lead to harm. Um, it manifested in an eating disorder for me. I was anorexic through my late teens. I've never talked about this. Um, I struggled with alcohol because I hated everything about who I was. And in my late years of high school, I would say that I was homophobic because of my own internalized homophobia. And uh, it's sad to me to think now in the position and platform I have in my life and how much I, I try and use it for the good, how much more I could have been to those who were struggling. According to the National Eating Disorders Association, which is the largest nonprofit for eating disorders in the US, the LGBTQ community is disproportionately impacted by eating disorders. While gay men are thought to make up 5% of the population, 42% of men with an eating disorder identify as gay. Data from the National Eating Disorders Association shows that a feeling of connectedness to the LGBTQ community has a protective effect against eating disorders in the gay community. Self-acceptance is often the most important step of the development of LGBTQ people. And for Devin, that moment came at a conference trip to Ottawa in the summer of 2007. I met this guy who I found attractive and we spent a week in Ottawa getting to know each other. And that was the first time in my life I kind of went, what's going on here? And we got to know each other. And, and the long story of it is he's the first guy I ever kissed. And as soon as we kissed, I knew that I was gay and I was okay with it. That moment of self-actualization led Devin to occasionally visit the Pride Center at the University of Saskatchewan on his way to the office next door at the school newspaper, The Sheaf. And it was through that process that I built up the community and the courage to come out publicly at the University of Saskatchewan. And I did it. I had a weekly column called Let's Be Honest. <laughs> and I hadn't been until I was. And I said, let's be honest, I'm your sports editor and I'm gay. It was probably not the most articulate thing I've ever written, but it was perfect for what it was at that moment in time and what I knew. In hindsight, I don't think I was ready for that. I don't think I was healthy enough for, for that. But I think it was important for me to do because Upon reflection, it was important for the people around me, and I felt like I was supported enough. I felt I was respected through the work I was doing, that I knew I had to do this for others who weren't maybe as brave as me. Respect is important in sports journalism because 
Audiences pay attention to the insight and knowledge a reporter has on that sport. There's a stereotype that gay men don't play or even know anything about sports. So there's a fear that if the sexuality of a reporter is the first impression to the audience, what they have to say could be dismissed. But there was a part of me deep down inside that would go on radio and talk about the Rough Riders and have all these rough, tough, prairie, tough men agreeing with what I'm saying and loving what I'm saying. And yet I was gay. And to me, that was a really cool thing. That was powerful for me. Um, it may sound a, a little ridiculous to say out loud, but for me, just knowing that, knowing that I bet you if they knew I was gay, they wouldn't listen to a word I said, but because of the merit of my knowledge, they respected me. Gets back to if you can play, you can play. But like hockey, sports media tends to consist of a privileged majority. The sports reporting structure is based on the old boys club, on ego, on how much you know about that sport. And it's hard to crack. Even today, there are few national out sports reporters. And I just think, hey, this is old news for me. I did this 16 years ago. Um, not to brag, but to go, what was I thinking? As men's sport environments are inherently masculine, reporters who don't conform to hegemonic masculinity might feel like they have to be conscious about how they present themselves within the space. In those early days of going to NHL scrums, the Grey Cup, on and on and on, I've done it all. I would change the way I dressed. The pants wouldn't be as tight. The shirts wouldn't be as bright. I was still the most fashionable person in the room, but I had to consider that what I was going to wear, which I think is sad. And you think about female reporters in sports, they have to consider that same thing. Being under the microscope of public attention often influences how journalists behave based on how they think the audience will react. For the longest time, I was horrified of who I was and what my voice figuratively and literally was in this space. I had an uh, executive producer early in my time at Calgary, Kathleen Petty. She pulled me into her office one day and she said, what is that stick you do with your voice and your hands? And she said, let me give you some real talk. I think you've created a persona on air so that if the audience doesn't like you, it's not Devin Haru they don't like, it's the persona and the Teflon defense you've created to protect yourself. I was pretty pissed off at her, to be honest. I thought, how dare you? Again, I was pretty young, thought I was a hotshot reporter, but I sat with it. That was a turning point in my career. And I'm indebted to Kathleen Petty for that moment because ever since then, this has been an exercise in sinking into the most vulnerable, authentic voice in journalism and in life imaginable. With time and experience comes confidence. And Devin says he's more prepared than ever to be himself when on the job. I'm a tour de force now when I show up at these events. There's nothing about me that I hide. 
And not hiding is very important for the sports community. Not only for Devin, but for all the LGBTQ kids who wonder if they too could have a place in the sports industry. It matters. It matters. The representation matters. If I knew growing up in Saskatoon that there were gay people out there, as ridiculous as that sounds, I didn't know a single gay person in my life. I only knew all of the bad parts of what it meant to be gay. Full stop. And so I think what, what drives me and through, through what lens I share everything is imagining what somebody like me would have meant to 13-year-old me. And I've, I've got enough of a community and a great therapist to handle the hate because there's a lot of hate. Um, I get a lot of emails, I get a lot of DMs, I get a lot of tweets, and I can really just laugh at them and brush them off. There are some that kind of get at me. But there's no turning back now. I don't get to pick and choose when I want to show up for my community and when I don't. But the age of the straight white man gatekeeping who gets to be a sports journalist is ending. There are pushes for more diversity in sports journalism by journalists, athletes, and sports fans. For more representation from journalists who are women, BIPOC, or queer. For so long, narratives in sport have been written, reported, and broadcast through the eyes of the privilege. The narratives of those athletes have been shared and journalists are the keepers of history. And if we've only had this singular view, this dominant view of what it means to be an athlete, that's all we're ever gonna get. But times are changing. Naomi Osaka is pushing back. Trans athletes are pushing back. Powerful athletes are pushing back. The WNBA are being leaders in this space. In the wake of George Floyd's death, we saw athletes rise up and say enough is enough. And as sports journalists, we also need to be on that journey and interrogate our privilege in the most meaningful way we ever have. And so as I continue to evolve and grow and learn, and I'm always trying to be better, and as my platform continues to grow, I'm gonna be unapologetic and unafraid in the face of people that want to uphold the power structures that continue to suppress and push back. My journalism, my words, and my intention will all align to continue this forward progress. It's not linear and it's not perfect, but I think we're going in the right direction and I'm pleased to be a part of it. It's not how I thought my life would go, but here we are, and I wouldn't want to be doing anything else.
The future of LGBTQ2S plus representation in men's professional ice hockey is unclear. Will Luke Prokop's monumental coming out change anything? Statistically, there could be dozens of LGBTQ2S plus players already playing in the NHL. Will Prokop's trailblazing pave the way for any of them to come out? Talking about LGBTQ2S plus issues in hockey can get exhausting, as many of the guests on this podcast have told me, because no matter how much activism is done, little change can be felt. However, Luke Prokop's coming out comes as one of the first major changes in the culture since Brock McGillis's coming out in 2016. Prokop's coming out could very well be the start of a domino effect that leads to more hockey players being themselves publicly. And there's reason to be optimistic, especially because Prokop's coming out was positively received by the hockey culture. So it wouldn't be surprising to hear another professional hockey player come out publicly in the near future. Ice hockey still has a long way to go. Issues with the sport don't end at homophobia and LGBTQ acceptance. Issues of racism, sexism, and scandal still run through the sport at a professional level, and even at a grassroots level as well. And intersections between each issue are also very common, and that's just on the men's side of the sport. Women's professional hockey also faces its own set of unique challenges. So it's important for people to pay attention to all these different inequalities so they can offer support when each issue has its opportunity to fight for equality. Because at the end of the day, everyone should be able to play hockey without having to hide behind a mask of conformity. <laughs>